Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On today's program, news and the premiere of a brand new series titled Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists. We'll have an in-depth conversation with longtime indigenous educator, playwright, and artist, Albert Abbey Yabara. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone In the first segment of today's program, news throughout Indian countries, we go to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where indigenous and environmental groups opposed to Enbridge Energy's Line 3 oil pipeline project asked the Minnesota Supreme Court on Wednesday to overturn a lower court decision affirming the approvals granted by independent regulators that allowed construction of the pipeline to begin this past December of 2020. Meanwhile, protests Water protectors, land defenders, and treaty protectors continue their actions along the pipeline route in northern Minnesota. More than 500 water and treaty protectors have been arrested or issued citations since construction began in the Minnesota portion of the pipeline in December of last year, despite the Biden administration canceling the construction of the remaining portion of the TC or Trans-Canada's Keystone XL pipeline earlier this year, the Biden administration still refuses to cancel Enbridge Energy's Line 3 oil pipeline project. The White Earth Band of Ojibwe, the Red Lake Band of Chippewa, the Sierra Club, and the Honor of the Earth organization petitioned the state's highest court to hear the case after the Minnesota Court of Appeals last month ruled that the Public Utilities Commission correctly granted Calgary, Alberta base and bridge a certificate of need and route permit for the 337-mile Minnesota segment of a larger project to replace a crude oil pipeline built in the 1960s that can only run at half capacity. The existing Line 3 is an Enbridge pipeline that ships crude oil from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin. It spans northern Minnesota, crossing the Leech Lake and Fond du Lac nations, and the 1854, 1855, and 1842 treaty areas. The $7.5 billion proposed new Line 3 pipeline would be the largest project in Enbridge's history history and one of the largest crude oil pipelines in the world carrying up to 915,000 barrels of oil per day and one of the dirtiest fuels on earth tar sands crude 
In addition, the pipeline construction violates several signed and ratified treaties between the United States government and indigenous nations, ignores Native American sovereignty, violates the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and the Free Prior and Informed Consent Doctrine. It increases the carbon footprint. It also increases the number of man camps, which are associated with systemic forms of sexual violence perpetrated against indigenous peoples. It damages ecological systems and indigenous cultural resources such as manumen or wild rice, which is an integral part of Anishinaabe traditions. Wild rice is also the Minnesota state grain and the pipeline construction also endangers numerous concentrations of historic archaeological, cultural, and sacred sites, not only to the Anishinaabe, but also to the Lakota, Nakota, and Dakota peoples, as well as other ethnic and cultural groups. And in Washington, D.C., within the first six months of the Biden administration, the U.S. Department of Interior has approved approximately 2,500 oil and gas permits for drilling on public lands and indigenous lands, according to an Associated Press analysis of government data. President Biden had campaigned last year, pledging to end new drilling on federal lands in order to help prevent increased climate crisis carbon emissions generated from oil and gas drilling and productions. President Biden selected Deb Holland as the Interior Secretary, who adamantly opposed drilling on federal lands while in Congress and co-sponsored the Green New Deal. Despite a temporary suspension on new oil and gas leases on federal lands that a judge blocked last month and blocked petroleum sales in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, there are still about 4,700 oil and gas drilling applications pending approval as of June 1st of this year. If these applications are approved, that means the Biden administration is on pace for approving approximately 6,000 oil and gas permits, the most since 2008. And in Oklahoma this past Tuesday on July 13th, indigenous peoples from many nations shut down Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt's anti-indigenous victim impact forum, which had no Native American representation and was intended to incite fear among the public in Stitt's continued effort to subvert and overturn the 2020 McGirt U.S. Supreme Court decision. Principal Chief Hill of the Muscogee Nation issued a press release and also stated that the Muscogee Nation was not even invited to collaborate or participate in the panel. The McGirt ruling determined that the state of Oklahoma was illegally exerting criminal jurisdiction over the Muscogee Creek Nation and further the Muscogee Nation was never terminated by Congress. The McGirt ruling also covers the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Muscogee and Seminole nations. Since the McGirt decision, Governor Stitt, Tulsa County DA Consuiler, Channel 6 News, and others have been accused of waging a disinformation campaign against Oklahoma's indigenous nations by perpetuating falsehoods about the impact of the McGirt decision 
on non-native Oklahoma citizens and the state in general. Governor Stitt, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, is widely unpopular throughout Indian countries with claims that he's attempting to dismantle indigenous sovereignty regarding matters of Native American gaming compacts. And immediately following the McGirt Supreme Court decision, Governor Stitt successfully asked the Environmental Protection Agency under Andrew Wheeler to strip Oklahoma Native American nations of environmental authority over their lands. And to Martinville, Louisiana, where 16 pipeline protesters, water and land protectors, and a journalist who were previously arrested and charged with felonies in 2018 are celebrating a major victory for the First Amendment after a local district attorney in Louisiana rejected all charges and vowed not to prosecute them under Louisiana's controversial amendments to its critical infrastructure law. In 2018, during opposition of the Bayou Bridge Pipeline and at the urging of the Louisiana Mid-Continent Oil and Gas Association, the Louisiana legislature added pipelines to the definition of critical infrastructure to significantly heighten the penalties for people protesting pipeline projects. Consequently, the amendments made it a felony punishable by up to five years in prison with or without hard labor for being on or near pipelines or construction sites allegedly without permission. The Bayou Bridge Pipeline, built by Energy Transfer Partners, is the tail end of the same network of pipelines that includes the Dakota Access Pipeline. According to the International Center Not-for-Profit Law, 36 states already passed laws criminalizing protesters, 45 states have already considered bills, 53 bills are pending in state legislatures across the United States, and there are 228 bills introduced. In most cases, the bills and laws specifically target water, land, and treaty defenders regarding oil and gas pipeline projects. And that concludes our brief news segment here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back.
the song Keep My Memory featuring Charlie Lowry by Alexis Rihanna here on American Indian Airwaves. And in the next segment of today's program, we go to the first part of a two-part interview and premiere of a new series titled Sacred Stage, Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists. Marcus Lopez, Executive Director of American Indian Airwaves, speaks with longtime Native American Indigenous educator, playwright, artist, and actor, Albert Abby Ybarra, as part of our new series. And now, Sacred Stage, Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists, with Marcus Lopez interviewing Albert Abby Ybarra. We are to begin with our discussion with Albert Abby Ybarra, which has been an active actor for many years, member of SAG, AFTRA, and Actress Equity. He performed as a musician most of his adult life on the West Coast to East Coast, currently resides in Chesapeake Bay near the Washington, D.C. area. Recently performed Mary Catherine Nagel's award-winning return to Narbara at the Royal Theater uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and Manatea at the New York City Public Theater, along with William Yellowrobe, Woodbones in New York City, as well as grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldier at the Museum of the American Indian, to name a few. Now, as a reporter, Abby was nominated for the Emmy for his documentary, Nicaragua Under Siege, which he wrote, produced, and hosted for CBS in Sacramento, California. Abby Chicano Pascuayaki actively participates in Native educational activities throughout the country with Project Indigenous, teaching cultural diversity from Indigenous perspective through the humanities. Once again, we'd like to introduce to our listeners, Albert Abby Ibarra. Abby, please tell about yourself. How did you get involved in acting? Uh, I was lucky. I, I came from a family of actors. My grandmother, my dad's mom, was an actress. And uh, in San Diego, there was, she was uh, on, the, on the stage in San Diego. So I, I never got to meet her because she died early. But I heard all these stories as I was growing up. And my dad, being around his mom, you know, picked up on a lot of that stuff. So he was very prone to, we talked a lot about acting and theater, music. Uh, my dad loved uh, the big band sound. So I grew up with a lot of uh, that, that 40 sound in my head. But I always knew, just hearing the stories of my grandmother, something inside of me told me that's what I wanted to do. So from the youngest age, for, for unknown reasons, I had it in my head that I wanted to be an actor. And I don't know why, what forced me to do that. But I did, I started working in, in, in grammar school. My first play was in the first grade. And then, you know, I was always in the school plays. And it was just something I knew I wanted to do. Although I had a million other interests, acting was the thing that, you know, coming out in the back of my head. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Albert Abbey Yabara as part of our Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists series. And now back to the interview. So at a very, very young age, I, I knew I wanted to be an actor. And, you know, life takes comes and goes. You know, I, I, uh, uh, I did all the things that, you know, guys do. You know, I joined, my father was a scoutmaster, so I joined the Boy Scouts. But we always did skits and at, 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 at the, you know, camperies and stuff. So I got to sing or I'd make up a skit. So I was always acting 
in any capacity that I could to tell a story, to make uh, to make people laugh, or to sing a song or something. My me and my brothers are all singers. It's just part of my blood that I uh, kept gravitating toward uh, acting and uh, took uh, theater in high school or college. And uh, then life takes hold, and you 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 know you go off in other ways. But yeah, I always came back to acting. And I got my I, I was lucky. I got my um, when I was living in Sacramento. I met some folks and who put me on a, on a morning television show. It was a Sunday morning show, kind of like a Face the Nation kind of a thing. And I did the community events. And they liked the way I read the community events and talked talking into a teleprompter. So they lost their host. And the lady says, would you like to host a show for me? I had never been on television. So I said, yeah, sure. So it was kind of a natural way for me to go to start telling stories on TV. And from there, it just kept getting growing bigger and bigger. I got calls to do uh, more voiceover work. I got calls. To, I, I went and uh, uh, I met a, a union guy came up to me from AFTRA. This was before SAG and AFTRA was one union. And AFTRA was doing a, came after me. He said, hey, I saw you uh, doing this uh, production. Are you a member of AFTRA? I said, no. He said, would you like to join? I said, sure. So I signed up in AFTRA back in 1983. You know, I think most of the people listening to this are probably not even born. But so I went. I started working in San Francisco because that was the big, the big union town. I did a lot of voiceover work, and then I started doing uh, filming for uh, small um, and what they call it industrials, where they I did stuff for Seagrams or their training, training shows, training movies for for big corporations, and it was all union work. And I got to LA, and boom, it just took off. Now you talk about this experience in your younger, when you were a child. On your background, Chicano and Basquayaki, and within the Southwest, why don't you unpack that for us, for our audience and our listeners, about your cultural experience with the dominant society, if you will. That was the interesting thing is, uh, in my mind, I had dreams of myself becoming a song and dance man. But, you know, the, the color of my skin uh, told me that I wasn't going to be doing that. And I didn't get many auditions when I tried to audition in high school and college. I didn't get a lot of plays and I didn't want, I, want, I never, I never figured it was because of who I was. And, uh, you know, we never saw growing up, my dad uh, worked at a film company. So we saw a lot of movies in our house on film at the actual film. He had a movie projector that we showed movies on. So I grew up watching the, uh, what they call now the old uh, you know, classics. But uh, I was always cheering uh, the, you know, the Indian side, you know, the native and uh, and we always marveled at how they how good the shot these guys were. They could shoot you know five Indians on a horse with one bullet. You know, and I grew up hating that look, but that's that's you know that was the that's what we faced growing up. And so you don't really talk about who you are in your background because you wouldn't get the job. You know, I learned later on that Hollywood is all compartmentalized, and you go to an audition and there's the, the African uh, version of McDonald's. Uh, there's the Latino version of McDonald's. There was uh, one time there was a Puerto Rican look. So um, it did, everything was compartmentalized, you know. So it was, it was a weird time to grow up. But my friends and I, we all agreed. Um, and we came from all various backgrounds. So I think what helped me knowing my, 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 my Yaki background in, in San Diego County at that time when I grew up, it was like Mississippi of the West. And there was times my grandfather wouldn't be served beer. and We were going on, on, on a picnic. They wouldn't sell him beer because he was an Indian. And so those kinds of things, I grew up with that tacit racism all around us. And uh, 
I, I didn't let it bother me to the point that um, uh, it didn't stop me because my friends were all Filipino, Guamanian, African-American, uh, Italian, uh, Portuguese. I grew up with the United Nations of kids in, the, in, in, in San Diego. So knowing the political spectrum was, was hanging over our heads, it didn't bother me until I got to college, you know, when I tried to uh, do things in college and then my background became an issue. And uh, uh, there wasn't a lot we can do about it back then. You know, you had to have rely on friends who, who were from the majority culture to help you and work with you. And everybody just accepted me as a human being, which was good for me. And so I did, it didn't bother me as much. We went to Arizona a lot, back to the homeland area when I was a kid, because that's where our relatives were. Uh, the other relatives that my grandmother's aunts and great aunts and uncles, and they lived on both sides of the border. And that's where I got a sense of what happened here. You know, we were Yankees on this side, Mexicans on that side. You know, it was funny. It was really weird because they drew a line through the homelands. And uh, I had uncles on both sides of the borders and some spoke Yome, some spoke Spanish. And that's all changing now with the, with the, with the language. Everybody's pushing to get the, throw the, the, the Spanish out of the of, of our daily dialogues. You know, I, I'm I'm too old now. I probably won't learn it all. I only know very few good words. But growing up, growing up in that sense, it was it was a weird sense. It was like living in two worlds at the same time. At home, I knew who I was. Out in the street, I was somebody else. So out in 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 a sense, I was acting already. <laughs> you know, acting to be all an American. You know, and then at home, we knew what we were, and we talked our we talked amongst ourselves, and we knew our own stories. But uh, it was a it was a weird way to grow up. But uh, it didn't bother me until I got older, because then there was overtly uh, racist things going on. That being said, I want you to talk about this identity question of identity, the question of racism, and the experience people at that time growing up about the Red Power days. Talk about that for a second. How that influenced you? That was, I think, the thing that. Uh, Brought me out of my shell was uh, I was in college and uh, I saw a poster and it said uh, Red uh, Floyd Westerman Floyd Red Crow Westerman singing at the at the Mayan Theater. So uh, me and a bunch of uh, my close friends we went uh, also musicians we went to go here and, and I saw Red Crow singing up there and uh, he started singing when he started singing Custer died for your sins I busted out laughing <laughs> and, and everybody in the audience was looking at us and. Uh, we were going, yeah, yeah, right. We're cheering on uh, this song. So after the show, we went up there and I started talking to Red Crow. And he had uh, really profound words to say as he was talking. And he told me, he says, you know, uh, you got to get up to San Francisco, man. That's where it's happening. We have we took over Alcatraz and uh, you got to get up there. So, uh, uh, you know, I, cause I explained to him who I was. I said, we're, you know, we're Yankees from Arizona. And, he says, yeah, he says, you know, everybody's going up there to 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 work on this thing up in Alcatraz. So that influenced me more than anything in my life. My parents my visiting the homelands, uh, hearing uh, hearing the the fact that, you know, Native people were actually standing up and doing something in a big way. And so I, that winter uh, I had been working at the uh, going to college and working. So I, I took my savings out of the bank, uh, bought a plane ticket and flew up to San Francisco and started walking around till I found some Indians standing on the corner <laughs> and they go, Hey, hey. so we started talking and they were out panhandling for money. And, uh, we got some money together, went down to the pier and they said, the boat's coming in. He said, let's go out to the Island. And I only had a pea coat on because it was San Francisco in wintertime. It's cold. So I went out to that Island and Oh my God, was it freezing? 
uh, I, I was frozen and, and I was I was up by the fire and I started tending the fire. They had a fire there because they had a powwow that night. And actually, out of coincidence, Floyd was there. Floyd Westerman was there. Uh, and they, they had a, a meeting and a powwow. And so it was a really good opportunity just by coincidence that I was there when uh, a lot of big names uh, in the American Indian Movement were there that night. And uh, I jumped on the first boat out of there. Uh, I know my cousin was looking for me because I had a cousin that lived in San Francisco and I told him I'd check him out. And um, it was almost a couple of days before Christmas. So I, I, I said, I got to get I got to get back talk to my cousin because there's no phones and there was no cell phones. So that was a that was a marvelous event that changed that changed my life. After that, I went back to school and I talked up, um, you know, Indian pride every day. And it's been that way since the rest for the rest of, you know, since my life, you know, for my whole life. I started leading my life towards that way that that changed it. That changed it meeting uh, Red Crow. Talk about the, the subject matter of campesinos and farm workers and the, and social justice issues for a second. You were involved with that. Talk to us about that. Yeah, about the same time uh, I came back from Alcatraz, the uh, United Farm Workers were on strike in um, Coachella Valley. And my brother had gone up to a conference up there and uh, it, it, there's the, the the awakening for that that the farm workers movement brought with Sister Travis and Dolores Huerta and Larry Itzelong and all the, uh, the the Monogs from Philippines, all those races coming together really uh, gave breath to the native people who were living here who were mestizos, which was the Chicano movement. Uh, it gave a lot of credence to the Chicano movement to understand. On the political sense, what's going on, and on the internal, who we really are, and in terms of being natives of this continent, only the line crossed the border, so we weren't considered, you know, American Indians or Mexican Indians. So that whole concept of the the other person inside of me, like uh, which because my on my dad's side were mestizo, my mom's side were Yaqui, so that blood is all flowing through all of us. So we, that was a great awakening for all of us in terms of the farm workers movement. I went up there uh, to go pick up my brother and then I ended up staying for two more weeks. No, I went up there to pick my brother up, but I had to resign from the air, from my, from my uh, uh, um, post office job. So I remember uh, I took my money out of the bank and went up there because I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and uh, we had a van and next day I know that van is full of strikers and for the next two weeks, I was uh, going back and forth at four o'clock in the morning, going out to pick up, uh, going out to, you know, picket lines. And, uh, and that, you know, singing on the picket lines, again, that, that theatrical sense of me wanting to do more, that really came out in terms of um, uh, realizing the, the potential that we had other than feeling like we weren't going to be able to do anything because of who we are, are in this country. So... I think I think the fact that these opportunities, political opportunities, made us all blossom and become better human beings in terms of who we should be, uh, instead of hiding behind something and being afraid. Now, there was a lot of fear growing up with a, you know, just like all Native people in the, in, in in Turtle Island, uh, the fear that, that that we we had to live with uh, for generations of fear, and that that fear was uh, realized by us in the '70s, and we started getting rid of that fear and standing up. And I think those were very, very important times to get rid of that fear, that culture of fear that we had uh, hanging over us for, for generations. You're talking about that cultural domination, that uh, dom dominion, you might say, 
of indigenous peoples being overcome by this this massive uh, uh, history of state oppression and genocide. But going from that, uh, you're a musician also. And that's pretty much of a juncture to your activism and then finally you're a musician. What was your band's name? And in turn, what did you play? What instruments do you play? I started out in music as a drummer in, in high school. And I started drumming in high school when I was about 15. And by the time I got to 18, my younger brother came along and he started drumming. I taught him drums. And I came home one day and I watched him on the drums. I go, oh my God, here I is it the drum set's yours now. You're gonna you're a lot better than I will ever be. So I was always singing and I had it, it was not hard, but uh, drumming and singing and it's quite a job to do. So I gave my I, I was a singer and then uh I sang with uh, uh my high school group and we called ourselves Tikal, which was a temple of the Mayans where we're and I think that the concept at that time we understood it to be where the gods and the artists uh, came together. So we we found a name that uh, was an indigenous name, uh, Tikal, and we played uh, for a number of years in San Diego. And uh, that led us, you know, when the strike came, I had already been, had that musical ear, so it was easier for me to learn songs. And I learned a lot of the, the farm worker songs, the strike songs, and uh, they call them huelga songs. And uh, so having that music in my life constantly made me want to play music full time. And I, and I started another band, or I didn't start another band. I started a band that uh, didn't last very long because um, we were all in college and, and our studies started taking over a lot of the work. So uh, I was in, a, I left Tikal, went to, uh, was trying to finish up my college. And, I, and while I was in college, I met some other musicians again. It was just one of those things. And, and I loved the way we played. It was a very small group. I went back to drums again. And then, um, so I've learned drums. I played, uh, I was in another band uh, when I was in my 20s and uh, we lost our horn section once and uh, it sounded flat. So I, I knew a friend of mine had an electric piano. I borrowed the electric piano and I learned uh, the chords just by ear. So I play a lot by ear and the guitar player would hit a chord and say, that's G minor seven. And I and I'd find it on the disc and he goes, yeah, okay. And it's G to C, G to C. And so I just learned to play by ear and then I would watch his hands and I'm going, what's that? And he goes, that's a C. So I started learning the guitar chords following, trying to learn the piano and learning the guitar chords. So I learned how to play the guitar from from uh, from my all my interactions. So now I, I play guitar and piano and I sing. And I'm still singing and we're doing a, an annual uh, a reunion and then we're going to retire the name. We've been playing for over... I, I, I guess 35 years we started playing and uh, we got together a number of years ago, about five years ago, uh, and we started playing and, we, and we, we picked up where we left off. Of course, everybody has arthritis now. <laughs> Everybody's a little bit older, so I'm still playing music. You know, I, it's one of those things. It's a lifetime commitment, like being an actor. It's something you don't quit because it's part of me. So I'll always be a musician. Now I sing more uh, prayer songs with the drum songs. So I'm, I'm still transitioning all around and I'll never... You know, stop learning to play. I, I had to play the harmonica for a play a couple of years ago, so I learned to play the harmonica. So I'm always learning new. You know, we're never too old to learn. I'm constantly learning too. 
till my last breath, I guess. I'll be a musician. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. That concludes part one of a two-part interview with Albert Abbey Ybarra as part of our premiere series titled Sacred Stage, Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Peltier song by Quiltman off the album Three Sisters here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program here on American Indian Airwaves, we'll hear the second part of a two-part interview with longtime indigenous educator, musician, artist, playwright, actor, Albert Abbey Ybarra, as part of our sacred stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists series. And now, part two of an interview with Albert Abbey Ybarra on Sacred Stage, Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists. I wanted the listeners to know a little bit about you, about your music background. But talk us about you're an educator and activities throughout the country with Project Indigenous. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, you know, Project Indigenous is uh, is an out- outgrowth of... Um, uh, work I've done in, in environmental education. I've done this in, in, in Los Angeles, in California. When I moved out here, I belonged to a, a, a national group of uh, educators, the North American Association for Environmental Education. And I'd go there and it'd be one native I might see out of 1,500 people. There was not a lot of native educators there. And one time I saw a guy and then I didn't get a chance to talk to him. 
But I saw him the next year, and we, we finally started conversations about 2007, 2008. Scott Frazier from up in Montana. And uh, we got together in 2009 and started doing workshops at this national conference. And uh, we decided, we put our stories together that we grew up with, and uh, we started talking about the pulse of the universe. The next thing we know, he says, well, I got a, comp- I got a group, uh, an organization, I'm going to call it Project indigenous for all indigenous people project indigenous was started by scott fraser and i joined i was one of the first there was a it's always been a small group um, about five or six of us and native, native educators from that we've met at this uh national conference so it was our idea to go out and uh teach cultural diversity uh from an indigenous perspective using the humanity so everything everything and anything under the sun was was uh, available for us to teaching and we started using this uh, national conference as a jumping off point where we would, uh, and the, one of the other reasons we wanted to do this was because we got a lot of questions from uh, white uh, educators who had, who had good hearts and good, and good intentions. And they go, you know, we want, we want, we have a lot of native students in our area, but they don't come to these programs and they don't come to school and this and that. So we started telling them, uh, you know, how to, how to get along. And next thing you know, we're doing a workshop every summer, every, every, uh, every uh, fall when the conference was in and we had a number of these conferences and we started uh, uh, finding out there was more interest from on the federal side. So a person from NOAA came to us and said, would you be willing to work with us? And so we started training uh, government officials from the, the top management. We told them if the managers don't buy into this, it's not going to work. So we had the top scientists from NOAA, the top managers from NOAA, uh, Forest Service, uh, EPA. We started doing workshops talking about how diversity uh, works in their environmental education programs and their conservation programs, because they work a lot with native people uh, and the native people in, 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 in some of the outskirts of uh, Alaska and some of the Montana, even down in Louisiana, they're seeing the, the, the results of climate change in real time. So they really want to work with the native people. So we made that happen for about a number of years. It was a very exciting, uh, exciting way to teach. We got calls from all over the country to go work with different education educators. So there was usually a conglomerate of native teachers, uh, of teachers from universities, from local governments, and we started doing these very diverse uh, trainings on how to how to bring the idea of climate change and conservation education by teaching them about the, the, the cultural ways and the protocols of different tribes and, and indigenous people so they could so they could build relationships with them instead of saying I'm the government I know better than you so they, we said you know and, and some of them were in awe of the elders that uh, knew so much about the environment and they didn't go to school you know they they didn't have PhDs so it, it, it really brought a sense of of uh, people's worth uh, on the indigenous side uh, from looking at it from the majority culture, like, you know, they're PhDs or masters or scientists, and then they meet these elders who are almost uh, equal to them in knowledge, in terms of historical knowledge and historical observations and oral stories that have been passed by and down. Now the scientists are saying, you know, that's, that's the truth now. They're realizing our oral history was not just made up myths, they're actual uh, observations. And that's, that's what science is based on, is observations. So, it was a very, it was a really good learning experience for all the people involved in Project Indigenous. We're still working uh, in, in, through the pandemic. You know, we almost gave up a couple of times, 
but uh, Project Indigenous is still uh, still hanging around, and uh, it's just our way of of being able to share our education and culture with the the non you know with the majority culture. What an interesting life! Now, fast forward, you might say, because we can talk about your. Nominated for the Emmy about Nicaragua under siege as a reporter and that section of your life, but I want to fast forward because I don't want to run out of time. But you recently you performed in the Mary Catherine Nagel's award-winning Return to Neo Rara at the Rose Theater Omaha and the Manhattan at in New York City Public Theater uh, with uh, with William Yellow Robe Woodbones in New York City, as well as Grandchildren and the Buffalo Soldier at the Museum of the American Indians. And that's just to, to tell our listeners, listen a little a snippet of what you have done just recently. Talk about uh, your recent performances. Okay. The most recent performance was uh, Return to Niobrara, which is in Nebraska. And it, 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 and it had to do with Chief Standing Bear, who was the first Native American to go to court uh, using the habeas corpus rule of law to prove that he was a human being. And up to that point in the 1870s, Native Americans were not considered human beings uh, by U.S. standards. But when he went to court, he won. He won his freedom by uh, uh, using habeas corpus in the court of law. And this play was written about uh, Chief Standing Bear and he had left, uh, there was there was a smallpox or uh, everybody was being wiped out in his tribe. His son died and he had his, and his, and his son said, dad, promise me you'll bury me in our homelands. And they were on a reservation in Oklahoma. And in the dead of winter, uh, he put his son's bones in a box and carried them. Uh, him and his band of his family, they walked through the snow and uh, and they were on their way to Niobrara to bury their son. In this play, uh, Mary Catherine Nagel wrote it, and in the play, it juxtaposed the the relatives of Standing Bear, uh, the Primo family, now it's, it's their name, and it was a young boy who got in trouble at school for having long hair, and so it was going back and forth from today to uh to the 1800s it was a wonderful play uh and i i uh one of the things that uh, i didn't know i had to learn i had to learn to speak ponca for this play and i had a wonderful uh teacher um lewis headman who is their last full-blooded speaking ponca of their tribe and um and they helped me speak the ponca and i was real nervous about it because on opening night the uh omaha people were there that's the people that you know you say omaha nebraska that's the tribe of uh that's that was their land in Omaha, the Omaha, and they were cousins to the Ponca. So they kind of have a related uh, language. Uh, it's not a huge barrier, so they could talk to each other if they had to. And uh, the Omaha were there and the Ponca were there, and I was really nervous behind stage. And Randy, Randy Ross, that's his name. He just passed away, rest his soul. Uh, Randy says, Albert, he says, don't worry about it. He says, why? He says, you probably know more Ponca than everybody in the audience because it's it's a, the language is... People only know bits and pieces of it now. So I had to I had to use a lot of the phrases, the actual phrases that Chief Standing Bear used in court right there in the city of Omaha. And that was a fascinating play. And that was the that's some of the great writings of Mary Catherine Nagel. On the other side, what got me to Mary Catherine Nagel is I met uh, William Yellowrobe, who was probably the dean of, of Native uh, uh, theater in the United States today. Uh, they 
they they put an announcement out at at the at the American Museum, the Native American Museum in D.C. that they were going to do this play, and I said, oh, I'll take a chance, and I and I sent my resume and my uh, uh, to emailed it in, and I get a call back, and they go, hey, come on in and read. So I read, and then the director says, would you mind reading here? We're short some people, so I kept reading all night long. I kept reading every time somebody came to audition. They, I kept reading all the with different people auditioning. So he calls me up about a week later and he offered me a role of Stevie in uh, Grandchildren of the Buffalo Soldier. Uh, and so that's that's when I got to meet Bill Yellowrobe. And then um, a, a year later, two years later, they did a, a play in New York. My first time in New York, we did Woodbones, another play of William Yellowrobe. And he introduced me to Mary Catherine Nagel. And that's how I got to know her. We did a, we did a play called Manahatta which is the name the, the Lenape people had for New York City or the hit city of Manhattan was the real name was Manahatta. So it was about the, when the Dutch came and took away their land and started stealing it. You know, the, uh, the, all the names that you see, the Wall Street, everybody talks about Wall Street. That was the center of commerce for the Lenape people. And people would come from, their cousins would come from New Jersey, from Staten Island on canoes to the area of Wall Street. And they would do commerce, they would trade and it's really interesting that that place, Wall Street, is now still a trade, a commerce place, but it's, you know, high rises now. In those days, they built a wall to keep the to keep the, the native people out. <laughs> so it was really a fence. They called it Wall Street. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Albert Abbey Yabara as part of our Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists series. And now back to the interview. And there's there's remnants of the wall that's still there in Wall Street if you go to New York City. So Wall Street was actually built to keep natives out of their own lands. And it was how the Dutch slowly but surely wiped out every animal and, and starved and shot them. Then they had no money. The The Dutch trading company had no money. And so they, they're the ones that started wampum as money. Uh, wampum was never used for money, for monetary. Wampum was given from the heart as a gift to someone and the, and the Dutch saw that and they didn't know what they were doing so they said oh we're gonna we're gonna trade we're gonna sell wampum and that's all that whole thing about wampum and that's when they started killing um native people the lenape people were being murdered for their for their for their hides uh and they got uh you know two pieces of wampum which is like 12 feet of, of wampum for 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 killing uh, uh lenape people and it was a real terrible time but she managed to do a play that had uh, the relatives living in, in Oklahoma and, and their daughter was living in Manhattan. The dad always wanted to go back to Manhattan. And, uh, and it was a wonderful play. Again, Mary Catherine Nagel wrote that play. And uh, I, I just been fortunate to uh, play in these, in these parts because I had been dreaming about this all my life. I, I could pretend to be a lot of different people. When I, when I did commercials in Sacramento and San Francisco, I, I played Greek, Italian, I was the you know generic ethnic for all their you know and I and I would use the accents and I would change my voice and but to have a play that was written about our history the native history of this country and the real stories that really go on with it that's you know, the essence of everything for me is is having to have these you know, wonderful writers that are do, that are working all around the country right now there's more and more writers every year native writers writing our story not the way Hollywood sees us or not the way some other playwright sees us. So it's a, it's a wonderful time uh, to get involved in native theater. And it's just, I think it's growing. People think it's big. It's, it's going to be a lot bigger. That begs the question for our listeners. 
that wonderful history you're telling us, personal history, but yet the history of this background contextualization, if you will, of a native theater. Now, on the West Coast is not as big, but even though it exists in different venues, and and we have discussed this here in American Indian Airways, talk about why our plays so important. Why is native theater so important? What's your view? I, I think... The, the the native theater is important. There, there's there's two ways to look at this. There's one, it, I think of it in, as as a community um, resource. For example, right now in anywhere in the United States, over fifty percent of all native people now live in urban areas. So when you're away from the reservation or away from your homelands, and and you're and all the distractions of a big city come in play, people are not lost, but they they leave behind a lot of their culture and identity and their language. Having having these native theaters play to these native uh, large larger and larger growing native communities in in urban areas uh, brings the stories of all the tribes together under um, because different playwrights write different different versions for, for for the Ojibwe or for the you know Lenape and, and so forth for the the Sioux from up in uh, Minnesota where um, Bill Yalaro's from so you bring these stories to the community. And they're stories of, of of pride again. Like when I saw Floyd Westerman, you know, so many years ago, I I think in my mind, I think that could happen again, where we bring these native stories to community theaters, where they can hear and see native actors talk about stories. And and it's funny when you're when you're doing native theater, and and there's a, a native joke in there somewhere. We know when there's more native people in the house by the laughter we get back because they're laughing at the native joke as opposed to just regular theater goers that go, hmm, interesting, you know. So it's, it's, it's a really good sense of bringing community. On the other side, on the other road is uh, there's a lot of people who want to take native theater mainstream to, to what we call to Broadway. And, and that's a whole little whole different ballgame because the people who control um, main, main stage theaters are generally not native people or people of color. And so there's, they, have, they have all the reasons in the world why we shouldn't be on stage. But two years ago, Mary Catherine's play, Manahatta, was rewritten and played on the Oregon Shakespeare Festival stage. And it ran there. She did a, a play called Sovereignty and it played in the arena theater. So they know if we go to the main stages, it works. But for me, I think it's more important that we play to more community stages and more community theaters to have more of our people hearing these stories because they're they're needed and they need that background that that sense of pride again to 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 keep standing tall and to keep true to, to themselves of who they are and who they should be as our elders did for us many many generations ago we're here because they stood tall and they stayed true to who they were so we could be here so i think we owe it to the future generations to keep doing the theater in the community sense and yes, we all aspire to, uh, you know, to, to see us, uh, to see more films and that kind of thing. But that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tougher nut to crack. And it's happening in little uh, bits and pieces again, not as much as theater. And I think, I think it's important that, that regional theaters uh, keep bringing these native plays to the, to the forefront because there are an audience for them. They're the native audience. And there's also the, the the regular the majority population. And right now, like I said, more and more natives are living off the reservations in urban areas. In New York City, there's over 150,000 natives that live in in New York. 
and it's you know because they go there for the work and then they go in the winter they go back home so it's just it's, we're growing our population is growing and i think we need to bring these stories and the and, and the theater to communities everywhere for our people to hear the stories and enjoy them and remember them and feel good about it and inspire other young uh, native people to become writers we don't always have to write about native subject but we have generations of stories to tell because the stuff that we saw in Hollywood in the movies was it's, it's all crap and lies and you know we want to set the record straight who we really are we could keep writing for for you know 100 years and we still won't get all our stories out there but that's that's where i think we sh it should go now lastly abby your voice your comments about all your history what about the youth what about the young people what is your comments to them well i think i think one of the most important things that they need to realize is that if we remain uh, true to ourselves and in, in terms of what, what what is the goal that we want to be, which is what we all want, and that is to be good human beings, have a good relationship with the earth and, and all our relations in, in terms of the four-leggeds and the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky. And if, if that incorporates who we are, then they're doing good because our ancestors uh, persevered and they were resilient to the point that they did things in, in, in advance for us to come. And I think the young people, in, in a sense, there's so much distraction going on, the technology, the noise of technology. We have to find a way to listen uh, to the songs of, of the earth, of the pulse of the universe. And if we take a, just a, a little bit of time to, to contemplate what we're doing in this, in this world, it, it might slow us down just enough to, to continue uh, with uh, the, the strength of our culture and the strength of our traditions and where we add to the majority um, thinking right now, there's there's a, the biggest challenge for the young people today, I think, is uh, the climate change. And they need, the native uh, community needs to be part of that discussion at the table. Many of our people are feeling the effects of climate change today in real time the, uh, the lands that they lost in Louisiana, Choctaw tribe, the lands that they're losing and the way of life they're using in Alaska and, and all over in, in the Navajo land, their, their water basins are, are nil. We're, we're using all, sucking all this water out of the, out of the mud of earth and there's no replenishing because we're having droughts. So they're, they're faced with a huge, and rather than freak out about it, if we chill about it and think about who we are and what we've done and what our ancestors have done and how they persevered through the worst of times, I think that would benefit them a lot just to think about where we came from and where we need to go and how we fit into to the majority of society today. It's no longer we can go live off alone by ourselves. We have to be part of the major society because we are that in, in many ways. We're taking over cities. Uh, our populations are growing. So we are part of the majority but bringing our thought and our culture to to the table brings them an interesting point of view as well uh, because there's no one thinking praying for the animals there's no one playing praying for the forest there's the only people praying for themselves and how much money they can make so we need that that thought that ex, that 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 thought that that we bring from our culture and our heart which was actually one of love it was sharing and, and it was love for the earth and love for each other uh, that, that, that made, that got us here this long, you know, uh, Chief Standingburg, when they found him, his feet were bloody. He was in the middle of a winter storm. He was, 
sick. Uh, people were dying and they were bloody from the frozen, walking in the frozen uh, ice to go to go do what they had to do. So we have that resilience in our in our DNA. And I think that's something that the rest of the world needs to know and understand. There are indigenous people all over the globe right now discussing climate change, but the United States is not doing it. We have to lead that. We have to lead that discussion. We have to lead the, the new way of how we're going to live in this earth if we're going to survive, you know, the next couple hundred years. So I think young native people need to understand the power that they have just in their own DNA today. The moment of silence is over. And that was part two of our two-part interview with longtime indigenous actor, artist, and playwright Albert Abbey Yabara as part of our new series titled Sacred Stage Talks with Native Playwrights and Artists here on American Indian Airwaves. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Albert Abbey Yabara. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Alexis Rihanna, Quiltman, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.